Support for Sponsor Talk and the following message come from Sponsor CX. If you're looking for an innovative, intuitive, and simple way to manage your sponsorships, look no further than this sponsorship management software. Sign up for a demo today and find out how easy it is to manage your sponsors. Learn more at www.sponsorcx.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Sponsor Talk Podcast, where we interview some of the leading minds in the world of sponsorship marketing and discover the various ways and how brands interact with properties in sports, arts, film, music, you name it. I'm today's co-host, Jason Smith. You can follow me at SponsorshipJ on Twitter or on LinkedIn to keep engaged with our Sponsor Talk community. Hopefully today you learn something new about the industry and challenges you to keep thinking differently. All right, I'd like to introduce uh, Yaron Talpaz, VP of Strategic Partnerships with Pico. Welcome, Yaron. Hi, Jason. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming on the podcast uh, today. Um, usually, I like to start the podcast by you just telling a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and and uh, what life was like for you in your early years of life. Sure. Uh, so, I was born in the States. Uh in East Lansing, Michigan, as my daddy was uh, studying at Michigan State, and uh, and then lived some years in, in College Station, Texas, as he did his uh, uh, second degree in uh, Texas A&M University. But then from the age of six, my, my family uh, are all from Israel, and we went back to Israel. So for me, my first years in Israel were from the age of six, and, you know, you can still say I mostly grew up in Israel, uh, but obviously with uh, strong ties to the U.S. As my dad went every two years to teach uh, some semesters over uh, with the Aggies and we would join him for summers. And then uh, yeah. sometimes I would stay, I'd stay in, in uh, like I did third grade here in, in Texas and then ninth grade. So a lot of connections to uh, U.S. sports and then. As a grown-up with my own family, uh, I lived four years in New York City, and I'm sure we'll be talking about that later. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And what did you? Uh, what What was it like um, living in the states versus Israel? What's the What's the biggest difference there? For me, I, I you know, I from whenever I remember myself, I'm a crazy sports fan. Uh, so obviously, U.S. is very good for that. Uh, yeah. you're into sports and American sports in particular, whether it's the NFL and baseball um, and not just obviously basketball is my thing. Well, but uh, like if, if you're in Israel, it was more focused on soccer and then basketball was number two. But like uh, the, the lack of football and baseball in Israel, both to play or to watch was something I remember as, as a tough experience for me because I was a, uh, I was already into it. And then, uh, yeah. but, but, uh, you know, in other ways, I mean, my family was in Israel. So most of my friends, it, it happened, you know, more on, on the Israeli side, just because I was from first grade and on, I was there. So it was kind of, I needed to break up for, you know, from, from my community, from my friends for half a year when I, whenever I, I traveled back here. 
and you started your career as a uh, sports writer. Is that right? So after uh, in Israel, I went through the, the usual process of 12 school years and then yep. uh, the Israeli army. Um, and in okay. the army, uh, I was actually uh, drafted for computer uh, programming. Okay. And when you do that, it's six years and it's, it's a great school. It's, it's practically uh, equivalent to a BA in, in computer engineering. Um, and, you know, I liked it. But again, throughout, you know, growing up, it was all about sports. So after I finished my army, I was 24 um, did not go to college again, because many in Israel, if you're doing something that, that is like this in the army, then you actually have something that you can, uh, you know, go to the industry, to the market with. After that, uh, I started working as a computer programmer, but at the same time, I said, my dream was to watch sports and get money for that. So, <laughs> uh, so I went after some Israeli newspapers, uh, trying to tell them I will be your expert in American sports because American sports is big. You know, it's big all over the world, and but Israel especially because it has a lot of orienta American orientation in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I I I I went for that. The one the, the second biggest newspaper sort of let me in, but just as a small freelance job. But I said, okay, they're opening the door, let's try. So while keeping my job, my day job as computer engineer, I started writing about basketball, Israeli basketball, uh, a couple of nights a week. And later, you know, every year it grew. And would you go to the games? They, would you go to the yeah, games so and watch them? Yeah, I would, I would go to games, but it, it was manageable. I was still, you know, young, no kids. Um, and so a couple of nights I could do that. Um, and I would be like a beat writer for a couple of teams in Israel and still following the NBA. And, and those are the years where you started having cable TV. So we started watching more in Israel and then internet was at its, you know, first years, but obviously a big, huge thing for me. Uh, and then I wrote a book about the NBA, but there was a publication in Israel that was looking for something. And I think that sort of validated me as, as someone who's an expert in the field. And then that, the same newspaper started asking me to write about the NBA. After doing that for a couple of years, I got an offer that was full-time from the Israeli Sports Channel, which is like the ESPN of Israel. Yeah. Um, and, and that's where they, they wanted me as a writer in, in, in the Israeli version of SportsCenter and also as a side job to be an NBA reporter. So I think uh, I decided to give up a lot of money from my uh, computer salary, computer yep. programming salary to go chase my dream. And I, I went for it. I went Good for, for it. you. And with the sports channel, I mean, you started as a sports writer and you really, you spent four, almost 14 years, I believe there. Correct. And, yep. and you uh, went from book writer all the way up to the VP of programs as well with yeah, a lot of so, different positions in between there. What was the journey like internally there with the sports channel? Yeah, it was an amazing ride. And I think you hear that. I read the book about ESPN and I think many of the ESPN's employees share the same thing. It's a tough environment, but it's like, it's so uh, full, right? I mean, you're never, you're never a dull moment and it's, you're chasing, working hard, but you're loving it. 
And I think that's what happened for me. Uh, so at first I was writing text for the, the anchors. And then I was promoted to be the producer and, you know, one of the guys running the show in the master room control control room during the during the actual programs from then from that that position i became chief uh, editor-in-chief of the news uh the daily news show and i think the big shift was in 05 so seven years after when uh the guy who became ceo wanted me to build the whole digital pro you know side of, of the sports channel uh so that put me on on the business side so vp of business development but that took me away from what I love and from in one way, but yeah. it was, you know, if, if you want to be an executive, sometimes, yeah, uh, you, you need to make that decision. So it wasn't an easy decision to go for that, but it, I, I still think the right decision because then I had executive positions, but I was still close to everything that I love about sports and, you know, managing the business of sports for a media company, the biggest one in Israel, uh, in, in, in sports, it, uh, you know, one of the most exciting jobs was a VP of acquisition. So all the rights. So I was dealing with the NFL, the NBA, the European, uh, champions league in, in soccer, yeah. uh, Spanish La Liga, you know, trying to get all those rights, German, uh, Bundesliga, you know, rights, Olympics, athletics, tennis, you know, uh, Formula One, Grand Prix, all, everything, NASCAR, trying to buy those rights uh, for us to air in Israel. And we did, you know, we, we did the air the majority, of course, also the Israeli sports, which was the Israeli Basketball League and the, the Soccer League. So both, again, for the typical Israeli fan is a fan of, of the domestic leagues, but just as much the bigger uh, top leagues of the world. So it's not like I think the typical U.S. fan is going to be mostly a fan of the American sports. And I think in recent years, there, there was the expansion to the Premier League, La Liga, Europe, the, the UEFA Champions League. Uh, but it's no one in the, in the States watches the Euro League, which is the second best basketball league in the world. It's great. It's, it's great basketball. It's just different. But you guys are going to be watching NBA and college basketball in most cases. So for me, that was very interesting. And I enjoyed uh, and loved every minute working uh, for the Israeli Sports Channel. And why did you end up leaving the Sports Channel? Where did you end up going after that? Yeah, so uh, it was, you know, I went all the way to the top. It was me or another guy for the CEO position. The other guy got it. And I said, okay, okay. time to move on. Yeah, uh, and then I got an interesting offer to join a startup uh, social media company that was uh, it was called Mobley, um, based out of the Israel R and D was in Israel, but uh, the main business office was set up in New York City, and the guy knew me from previous experiences we had together in the Sports Channel, um, and he wanted me to come over to be to head content and business development for Mobley. Mobley was in the photo sharing space back then. So we're talking about, he, he founded it in 2010. I joined in 2011. And that was like half a year after Instagram started, you know, made their, their big first move, I think. And they were pretty much in a success from the start. So we were sort of chasing them. Again, different thing from the Israeli sports channel, uh, but still it was a lot about media. We ended up having some very cool investors 
um, and I would say brand ambassadors and influencers. Uh, I remember I was I went after uh, a young player, and I told the CEO, "Let's go after him. We want him." His name was Steph Curry, and, yeah. uh, and I was uh, he, till today he remembers that. You know, he's calling me a genius for identifying Steph as someone who's going to be a big hit um, on, on social. And we had uh, Serena Williams and we had Lance Armstrong before he came out, you know, uh, admitting everything that went on with him. So we had some uh, very interesting uh, people in the sports uh, industry, but also in the music industry. Uh, it was an, uh, an interesting experience. It was a good app, but eventually I felt that it had no chance. I got a very interesting opportunity back in sports uh the the biggest sports team in israel is, is maccabi tel aviv basketball club and yep. they reached out to me because they knew me from my days in, in the sports channel also as an nba guy as, a, as someone who had uh, orientation to the u.s market and they wanted to expand to the u.s um, to see if there's business here uh growth opportunities for the team for the obviously large uh, Jewish community in the States, but also ex-Israelis. And they just won the Indian Cup. Um, so champions of the, Euro, of, the, of the Euro League. And they felt like, okay, we sort of maxed the Israeli market. Let's see if we can do something uh, in the US. And that was a crazy, uh, I loved, again, a uh, great opportunity. I loved the challenge. It was tough because I was like operating uh, as if I was like a startup within uh, a company because I was all alone uh, based in New York City yeah and thinking thinking what can we do here and we ended up with uh, an interesting idea uh, it was my idea uh, it was a crazy project we decided let's so so the thing is your your league teams they play NBA teams uh, during preseason sometimes yep and but there's no growth there. I mean, it's uh, the, the deal is that the NBA usually pays a certain amount that basically covers the cost of traveling and coming over for the team. So it's cool. You know, it's, it's broadcast in Israel and people wake up for that because all of a sudden Maccabi Tel Aviv are playing the Cavs with LeBron James. You know, so we, we have a chance to see Israeli players posting up LeBron, you know, whatever. It's, it's yeah. a cool experience. Yeah, uh, that's fun. But then I understand. I understood that we can't. That there's no growth in that. But if we try, and and go after like owning a uh, an event, like we're hosting an NBA team in a small arena or or a different team, then maybe we can tap into the the market here that wants to see Maccabi after seeing them. You know, during the years they grew up in Israel, now they're living in, let's say, New York. Uh, let's give them an opportunity to, to watch them uh, live in person. I went after a big game against uh, Milano, so from Italy, a big uh, another EuroLeague team. We ended up renting Madison Square Garden, so that was really uh, an ambitious project. Uh, we covered the cost. I did not sleep for three months. <laughs> it was unbelievable door-to-door -door marketing. Um, and we ended up filling half of MSG. So like 10,000 people, a little, a, little, you know, a little more than that. So it was yeah, great good. atmosphere. 
But uh, in hindsight, I should have gone for a smaller arena and have that packed. But of course, you know, when you're doing the spreadsheets, uh, it looks much better when you're when the potential is 20,000, right? Uh, tickets compared to 10 or seven, if I would have taken you know, one of the smaller arenas in the area. Plus, Madison Square so, Garden is so iconic, right? And that exactly iconic, I, yeah, iconic, and twenty thousand people. When you're putting it in a spreadsheet, it it comes out, you know, with a a beautiful number there. So yeah, uh, <laughs> it, it it ended up being. Uh, and then we also had another game in in the United Center in Chicago. So both teams. So Very it cool. was the first ever pro pro basketball games played in the U.S. between two international teams. It was, it was really cool. But throughout that experience, that was two years, the team started to struggle a little bit in terms of basketball, you know, in sports, especially if the teams are usually operating at a loss or break-even uh, operational-wise. Um, the owners, it was hard for them to just, like I was telling them, okay, this is going to be tough. We can do this every year, find a better way to, to play a different, you know, play a team, combine that maybe with a couple of games against NBA teams. We can make some money out of it. But if we want to make bigger money here, we need to create an Amazon uh, entity so we can start selling merchandise here. There's a lot of expenses in that. And, yeah. and they were like, no, no, we can't. We're, we're losing money. We need the money for better players. We want you to come over here back to Israel and help us with the brand. And that's what ended up happening. I went there. I did that for uh, an extra year and a half. And then the team, like, again, went through a big shift and the CEO was uh, let go. And I decided, okay, but, you know, I got an offer from a, a cool startup and that's where I'm working uh, till today. Yeah. So you left and, and, and now are the VP of strategic partnerships for Pico and, um, how did that opportunity present itself? So Pico was knocking on my doors when I was working for Maccabi because Pico, uh, Pico's, uh, I would say, go-to-market was the sports industry, still is. Uh, it's not the only one. So I got to know them. We ended up piloting with them, and I love the product. And so back then, the product was uh, fan engagement, uh, in, in arena fan engagement. So all these games that you're seeing, the shuffle boards when you, you know, fans are in the stadium and they need yeah. to guess where the whatever you know, uh, product is, is uh, being hid, hidden. Um, so all of those things, but with the twist of people can vote. So it's not just one fan doing it. You can actually have the full arena uh, interacting and being engaged and playing that, whether it's a trivia game, think of something as simple as select the MVP of a game. Yep. So think of a timeout in the third quarter and you're starting to see on the big jumbotron, uh, uh, like a call to action, send us the word MVP to our Facebook page to select the MVP, to choose the MVP for you know, of this game. And we're going to put in, the three top players till then. Is that done through social media or is it through a, a singular URL? How, how does, how do the fans? Yeah. Engage? So the, the fans, what they do is uh, in that, in that instance, it was just, they need to uh, 
just send the word MVP to the account, the Facebook account of the team. Yeah. So in that case, it was Maccabi Tel Aviv. So all they did, they, they use Messenger and they just, you know, sell search for, they just send the message uh, MVP and that's uh, the bot. And, and, uh, and that, that's one experience. Obviously, today we have the same experience on Twitter, Instagram. It could be uh, promoted from the team's app or website. So now, now you have the full, the full circle. Back then, it was a Facebook Messenger thing. Um, and it's cool because now, you know, for, for Maccabi back then, I was selecting the MVP. We had a sponsor that was, you know, getting, getting uh, some brand exposure. Uh, as we were putting the signs up and we would just say uh, MVP of the game presented by, you know, that sponsor. And uh, at the end of the game, I would just declare who the sponsor was and we would do a short on-court interview uh, with the PA guy and have a backdrop of, of the sponsor. And that was it. And now all of a sudden the sponsor is getting much more because fans are interacting with this. They're actually choosing the MVP. And of course the experience itself is branded with that sponsor, with that uh, product. And you're providing the, uh, the software, the, the product for them to be able to use there. And then correct. the teams are selling the sponsorships to these interactive games. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. And so, so, so now they have more real estate to go to the to their potential uh, sponsors partners, and just offer them. And I remember one of the things I was, you know, challenges I was dealing with uh, when I was working as a CMO at Maccabi back in Israel was, okay, we have the sponsor and they're buying some time on the LED screens and maybe they have a patch on the jersey. So that's the traditional uh, brand awareness that they're getting, uh, but. People came to me, okay, but we also threw into the deal some digital exposure. So what can we do? And what teams are doing, even till today, and, and you know, I'm talking about that was like 2016, but even today in 2021, teams are still, they, they're just going to do a Facebook post or have highlights, and they'll splash the logo on the highlights. And that's yeah. it. So the brand is just getting its logo. And all of a sudden we could activate fans with the brand in a much uh, personal way. Um, and you could play this game, you're selecting the MVP, and at the end, we can drive you to the brand's website. So at least you're driving traffic to that website. And, I'm so, and, and that was initially, okay, the product today is, has developed, and I, you know, I'll share soon what, you know, what, what else we were doing now. But Back then, that was the that was the play. It interested me, and so uh, you know, I started working there. And then we went after uh, the sports market uh, worldwide. Yeah, and how how many teams are you working with now? Um, around sixty teams. Um, so really, from U.S. sports uh, all over Europe, India, Mexico, um, of course Israel as well. You know some names like like Borussia Dortmund, Bayern Munich, yeah, uh, the Mumbai the Mumbai Indians over in India, uh, New Orleans uh, Saints, the Los Angeles Clippers, DC United, uh, San Francisco 49ers. So uh, some great teams that that we're working with, um, and I think uh, you know it's 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 been great. 
that, that's what I can say. Yeah. And, and how do you, how are you guys using data to not only help with the fan engagement, but also with the sponsorships as well tied to those? Yeah. So, so if you're thinking, first of all, value proposition today of Pico is identifying digital fans uh, for, for brands yep. and helping them become first party day uh, owners and not just, you know, sort of renters because today they might have 10 million people following them on the social media channels, but they need to pay these platforms if they reach out to them, you know, with, through paid campaigns. Yeah. So what we're saying is there's a huge gap between the amount of users you have in your internal uh, CRM da- database compared to your following. So let's start closing that gap. Um, and, and so what happens is when, if, if you're thinking uh, about the example I shared earlier, fans are playing these games and we uh, capture data about them. Of course, uh, nothing is uh, scraped. Uh, everything is uh, you know, through GDPR compliance or the, the California privacy rules. Um, and basically at the, at the start of the activation, we will, we will tell you the fan, of course, it's not going to be, we, it's going to be the team working with us. So you're communicating with the team and we're a white label. Uh, first of all, you know, please accept the terms and conditions so we can store your data so we can serve you better in the future with, you know, whatever matches your preferences. And what happens is based on your actions, that's one type of data that we get. Other data that we get is some, you know, from the social media channels itself, themselves. So it could be the username, uh, first and last name, the gender, the language, and then emails, uh, zip codes, favorite player, favorite team, uh, preferred merchandise, those types of data questions. We literally ask one at a time. So if you're comparing that to sort of the enter to win world that we often see in sports, this is a much better experience because enter to win is sort of a dull form that you have to you know, fill, check all the boxes, put in your email. And every time they're going to do it, you're going to be asked that again. With us, you're usually maybe just filling up one data question and it's going to be a different. So if you're playing today for the first time, you're going to get the email question. Next week, we're going to ask you the zip code question. Following week, you're going to get the the favorite player question as while your friend's playing the same game, but for him, it's going to be the first time he's going to get the email question. So we, we keep, you know, we keep the data. We, we identify who you are and that's how we're building the database. So we're building the database, both vertically adding new entries as, as we move along, but also horizontally uh, by adding uh, and, and improving the quality of the data about you. Yeah, I was just going to ask, how, how do you feel like the teams are using that data to help drive drive business? First of all, the data is used either for direct sales of the team. So it could be tickets or merchandise, or it could be for sponsors, uh, anything relating uh, sponsors. So an NHL team used us for last minute tickets. So the, they would uh, understand who you are. Are you living in the area? Because last-minute tickets are usually not going to fit if you're if you're a team Nashville and uh, I'm living in uh, New York or as far as Tel Aviv, Israel. There's no point offering me uh, single-game tickets and yeah. especially not last-minute. 
So, so that's the whole point of understanding who, who you're talking with and who you're communicating with. So you're able to now come up and a database within the database of the fans that are in the area who are not season ticket holders who are now who might be interested in last minute tickets. So they're getting a notification, a message on Messenger or Twitter DM asking interested in tickets for to, to, tomorrow's game or tonight's game. And for you, we're going to have a special offer just because it's, uh, you know, we're talking to you one-on-one -on -one here. Um, so teams are, are happy to do that because they're hesitant of having these, you know, large banners announcing a big portion because that will piss off others who have bought tickets, you know, for face value or season ticket holders. But if there's, if it's direct communication and you want to get, bring people for a first time into the arena, then this is a cool way to do it. And it's like a personal message. The world doesn't need to understand that you're offering this promotion to a, a single ticket buyer. And then the same thing could be if you're a Philadelphia 76ers, for example, and there's Black Friday and uh, there's a new release of the city edition uh, jersey. And you know that I'm a, a Joel Embiid fan and you're a Seth Curry fan, then both of us are going to get the same promotion, but I'm going to get it with the jersey that has Embiid's name and you're going to get it with the jersey that has Seth Curry's name. And what we're seeing is about 40% click-through rates on those types of offers. So that's where you're uh, using targeting and personalization the right way. And, and if it's a generic image, if we don't know who your preferred player is, then it drops to around 15% click-through rate. So, so that's, that's the value. Yeah, and how, how about for sponsors with data as well too? Do, they, do, the, do the team so, use, yeah. use a lot of that data with their sponsors as well? For sure, for sure. So one thing is we're running these games and at the end we can present you a generic offer before we know about you, uh, something, let's say, uh, uh, Budweiser okay, or Nike. Yeah. Um, so if you're clicking, that's an action we uh, record and we add to, to your entry and we know showed interest in Budweiser. So that's one thing. So we sometimes we have teams, NHL teams, where we're having a carousel of, of uh, sponsors. So uh, here's special offers from our partners. And then if you scroll down and scroll sideways, you're going to see Papa John's, and then you're going to see Jack in the Box, and then you're going to see another food chain, and then another food chain. And you're clicking on one of them. So we know you're a pizza lover or you're a burger guy. So now the team, it's a little bit like an ad network with Google, right? I mean, the team has uh, 10 different partners and they're offering, uh, they're putting these partners in front of their fans and they see uh, who's clicking on what and then they're acting based on that. So from then on for you, because you clicked in the past on a pizza uh, promotion, you're going to get more pizza promotions when you're playing these games. And I who clicked on, something uh, that has to do with, uh, let's say I'm a, I'm a runner and I'm interested in uh, Nike apparel or something, then I'm going to get more offers about that. So that's how you're doing it. Uh, and of course, the teams have the option because they own the data. They can send all of, all of the data of the relevant people, those who have clicked on a certain product to the sponsor. So the sponsor is going to get now you know, thousands of people who have showed interest 
and they can reach out to them directly or continue doing it through the team. Yeah, and I wanted to, to uh, that's super interesting, but you and I chatted a little bit about this. Your CEO, an article called Sign, Sealed, and Not Delivered, just cut, talking about an investment that you guys were, were in the process of receiving. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, so, uh, you know, startup life is uh, obviously as it's up downs, very, uh, I would say, interesting. And the way it goes, how you, you start from the seed level uh, investment, and then we had a pre-A, pre-round A uh, investment. And then this was the round A uh, investment that we secured the, the lead uh, investor. And we're talking about, uh, you know, around five to $6 million coming in with the option for that investor to add 12 more, um, and become, uh, you know, even a bigger uh, investor in the company. And, you know, it was all, you know, started uh, negotiated uh, over springtime of uh, 21. And then uh, a deal that was signed uh, by July with the deadline of them uh, actually making the, tra- the, the money transfer by the end of August. It ended up uh, not happening. So that, that was the whole idea of the article, sharing a story of how sometimes we just hear how startups are raising you know, billions of dollars or hundreds of millions and how many startups have been, we called it, you know, fake it till you make it approach yeah. for startups. But sometimes investors are doing the same. Um, and they are like, they... Uh, apparently these guys didn't have the money in their banks and they were waiting for some funding uh, from uh, a VC that based on what they're saying, they didn't get. Um, So they were, they signed an agreement and I'm talking about months of negotiations. They knew everything, you know, just think of them signing this agreement and us acting uh, based on that, you know, growing the company, knowing that the money's coming in. So they knew all about that. Uh, But again, I think the moral here is uh, we're in a good place still because we have a great product and we have great clients around the world. Um, And we're now uh, negotiating with others to replace them, uh, you know, as lead invest. And I think the main sort of uh, thing we would, uh, you know, by coming out with this story was to just make sure that startups are aware that sometimes even when it's signed, um, especially in this business of, of, of the startup world, um, it's, it's, you know, nothing is guaranteed. And I think everybody in the world knows about it. Uh, you know, deal is, it's signed, but until you see the money, uh, you know, nothing is, is, uh, is for sure. But especially that is especially important for startups because they're so depending on the money. Um, and they're, they are basically startups because they're still not profitable. So they need that investment money to come in. And, uh, you know, we wanted to also share uh, and sort of be proud of our resiliency. You know, we could have folded at that time. Uh, We could have, you know, tried to sell the company, um, go home in some ways, but we decided to continue, uh, go at it, continue working with our great partners all over the world and then find someone else. And then I think we're close to getting that. 
Yeah, that's great. It does show a lot of resiliency. I was going to ask you how, how that's been for the culture of your company, but it sounds like it's only enhanced the culture of your, of your company by going through that. Um, and I think you answered this. Um, are you planning to raise some more, some more capital for, for the company? Are you having some further discussions there? Yeah, exactly. So that's where we are right now. Uh, you know, checking out options, whether it's, uh, you know, investing, uh, as around a, some have been inquiring about, you know, uh, a full, uh, takeover, you know, uh, uh, or uh, MA. So we're looking through all these opportunities and uh, we'll see. You know, we definitely want strategic partners um, and open uh, because this is, you know, we, we sort of focused on the sports side and sponsor side, but think of, of brands and, and we're, we're also operating in the CPG uh, and also esports. So because everybody who has a reach and has a following on social media has this need because yeah. they don't know all of those who are that's what you know one of the things we tell them you're getting huge amounts of engagement you're getting a hundred thousand five hundred thousand likes on a post so what like what's the difference if it's fifty thousand or five hundred thousand uh in the practical day-to-day -day sense and uh because you can't reach back to these people you don't know who they are you're still operating in sort of a generic way they're coming out uh and and again this could be brands um that are uh some of them just selling directly or selling through retailers they don't know own any data about their consumers so i think that's that's what we're looking for right now uh you know whoever is coming in to invest uh to be a strategic partner in a way that's going to help us uh, have a, even a bigger, uh, I would say share of, of those markets. No, that's perfect. And that leads into a couple of questions I'd like to conclude with, with, uh, the guests that I have come on, on the, uh, on the podcast, but what makes you get up in the morning and do what you do? Almost every morning I run. So that's the first thing I do. That's good. Uh, and yeah, no, that's great. And I'm, I'm, I'm probably hooked by now and, uh, you know, addicted to that. Uh, but I think, uh, it's a great start for the morning. And then I love when I'm, when I'm doing that, that's where I'm, I'm going to think about, uh, the things I love about Pico. And it's just the challenge to me. It's being still, uh, in close connection with the sports world or, uh, helping others, you know, use technology. Uh, just to have better, I would say, uh, experiences and better service. So I think that's where technology takes the social media side and maybe putting it uh, a step ahead. Perfect. And what do you feel like the future holds for Pico? I think uh, great things. I think it's uh, being working uh, with uh, maybe data companies like the SAP, Salesforce, Microsoft Dynamics of the world that are all about arranging data. For, for the big uh, companies, the big brands. I think if you add a step of, let's not just arrange, but help capture the data in, in a good way. And that's that's the thing I'm, I'm, you know, I'm continuing to emphasize because it's a good experience. It's not intrusive, it's not boring. So I think that's, that's probably the future, being uh, partnering with those companies. And we are partners already with SAP and uh, can integrate with the others. 
but maybe a bigger uh, and closer relationships with those guys. Yaren Talpaz, VP of Strategic Partnerships with Pico. Thanks, Yaren. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Make sure to follow us at Sponsor Talk on Twitter and at the Sponsorship Space on LinkedIn and join our community if you're interested in learning more. Thanks and have a great day.